What's good, fam? It's your man, Norm, here. Are you following us on social media yet? If not, you may find us on all of the major social platforms such as Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn. Find us at New Numa. That's P-N-E-U-P-N-E-U-M-A. From there, you may find myself and Justin and follow our personal accounts also. As you know, feedback helps everyone grow and we need your feedback. If you want to join our team, have suggestions on how we may improve, if you want to be interviewed by us, or if you have someone you would like for us to interview, please email us at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you would like to see our podcast grow to that next level, you may also give financially to the cause whenever you feel like it by going to our anchor.fm page, clicking on the button that says support this podcast. We will greatly appreciate you sowing into the vision to help us spread the good news about the truth of God's kingdom worldwide. Thanks for your support and keep it locked right here. Well, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. <laughs> it's been a long time since we got together. <laughs> so, um, I just, you know, for the sake of those that are listening, I want you to just kind of give them a brief overview of who the two of you are. Well, I think we we met on a blind date, actually. Uh, we both had previous marriages, and we were... Uh, just looking for somebody. Uh, I didn't think I was looking for a wife. I just wanted to find a lovely lady. <laughs> and uh, a friend of ours set up a blind date, and I went and knocked on the door, and she looked out the door and almost didn't open it. Yes, <laughs> this was 48 years ago, so it, it's lasted really well. But uh, that day I looked out there, and it was... It was a time when men's styles had just changed. Okay. Actually, it was the first year that men were wearing different colored shirts than white. Oh, you cannot okay. even understand. <laughs> but that's the way it was. Okay. And also, men usually wore three-piece suits with vests, you know, and carried briefcases and all that. And here he stood, it was the summertime, with long hair to his shoulders, curled under, mm. red, beautiful <laughs> red hair, curled under like in a page boy, a huge, nice, but huge red beard, mustache, mm. and he's got on white bell-bottom jeans <laughs> and a, a gray uh, a dress shirt, French cuffs, with a lace cravat and a diamond stick pin in it. I tell you, I was very quiet. I held my breath. <laughs> I looked at the people, and I really, I thought, I have never stood anyone up. This could be it. But, <laughs> but I, then he smiled, and uh, he has dimples when he smiles. Okay. So that just did it. My heart melted. And I said to myself, 
What what could it hurt? It's just one day. <laughs> this is the proof of what a, what a question like that could mean. Oh, well, wow. she did open the door, and uh, I was a bit surprised because I wasn't really, uh, I didn't know her, and I had never seen her, and I just had a, somebody give me a description, and the description that I had, or at least the mental picture I had, was not at all what was in front of me. It was a very beautiful girl with a long black hair and a uh, great figure and really nice looking and, and very <laughs> pleasant. And uh, we just had a wonderful date. We went to a party that was a protest party. You had to bring a sign that had a that wow. had something on it that said protest. Okay. So we did that and had a night. You know, he's a very great conversationalist. Mm -hmm. So I could just listen to him all night. And I, I have managed to listen to him for 48 years. I still think That's he's good. really interesting. <laughs> That's you know, good. Neither of us dated anybody else after that. We just That's right. Uh, we we dated casually for a few weeks and then it got more serious and we started dating more and more. And probably the the one day that's most memorable, we were uh, going to the uh, World Series. World Series, 1971 Orioles World Series. Wow. Where, I think it was the sixth game or fifth game. And they were in the old park, of course. Okay, and, yeah. And we had time before the game. We went to Drude Hill Park, and there were swings. And it was it was a beautiful, crisp autumn day. And the leaves were falling, and it was a bright sunshine. And I'm pushing her on a swing. And we just kind of, at a that point. A movie could have been made yeah, right there. Wow. <laughs> it was like the two of us, it was just we knew, right? Wow. That was it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been dating for a month and a half, and, and we just knew. We dated another and, year and got married. Yeah. Okay. And, and Robert yeah. had became complete with two sons, okay. which I had asked the Lord for back before the Lord was my Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, I prayed about everything, but I didn't really think anybody was listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had not given my life to the Lord. I wasn't born again. But I remember specifically asking God, to send me a man who had two sons, then the Lord made me just forget that when I met him. And so on our second date, of course, we were taking the boys out somewhere. <clears throat> and uh, they were six and nine. And uh, so I was really happy to get a ready-made family. I was 29. He was 32. I think that's right. And um, so we just went on from there, and it was exciting. But here's the most exciting thing that uh, we got married almost at Christmas. And about three weeks later, a woman came, who was a friend of mine, over to see me, and she had this letter she wanted to read from her sister. And her sister had um, had this rare disease called elephantitis, and it's where your legs grow are so big they're like an elephant, you know? Wow. Yeah. And you have to spend so much time in a special chair with your feet over uh, up above your head and... Um, your heart, brother, and special stockings, and your limited life is very limited. And uh, so this woman, his, her sister, had gone to a little prayer meeting in the neighborhood, and they asked if they could pray for her. Mm -hmm. And they did, and she was immediately healed. Wow. Her leg, they went, they went down, and that was the end of that to this very day. No more elephantitis. And so... Uh, She's telling me this. We're sitting at the kitchen table, 
three weeks after we're married. Robert is standing behind her, looking at me as I'm facing the woman. That's the weirdest thing I've ever and he's, heard. And he's giving this little motion uh, like she's crazy, crazy. in the head. <laughs> you know, and I'm trying not to uh, laugh or look oh, at him. <laughs> so then she finally leaves. and, and I've gone to church all my life. I, I, I mean, we were a church family. I sang in the choir from the age of six years old on up every Sunday morning, you know, and and uh, by the time this uh, had occurred, I'd been a, uh, on the board of the church and a youth counselor and all kinds of things. And I never heard anybody talk about Healing. anybody getting healed. Well, you know, it did. but this was a Methodist church. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But well, uh, yours was a Methodist church. Yeah. Hers was an Episcopal church, which is uh, okay. even funnier. Wow. Her husband was the rector of an Episcopal church. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> More surprising. Okay. Yeah. Wow, so um, so let's talk about who you are as far as like ministry, things of that nature, to give people an idea of who they're listening to. Okay, right now I'm here with Robert and Annette Stagmer, two uh, great people in the Lord. They've been doing a lot of things in Maryland, but I want them to talk about, you know, what they've been doing. So why don't you tell them a little bit about your ministry, where you are currently and, you know, briefly tell them about who you are. It was interesting. Uh, back in 2005, we were at a conference in Tennessee. I believe it was Tennessee or was it Dallas? One of the two. Uh -huh. Anyhow, and uh, Chuck Pierce, well-known prophet, and apostle, a person we greatly respect. He's authored a number of books. And um, we were at the, at the conference and Chuck was there and, uh, we had we had been working with him for three years uh, as prayer leaders in Maryland, and so we were part of the strategic, strategic prayer, network. prayer network at that time. Anyhow, Chuck came up behind us as we were leaving the conference. The conference was over. We were walking out the door. Chuck came up behind us, and he doesn't do this as a normal thing. He doesn't seek people out. People come to him, but he doesn't go find people. And he's actually finding us and saying to, and says to us, when you get back to Maryland, start calling yourself apostles. Well, frankly, he scared me to death. Because mm. I thought, apostle? People will think I'm crazy if I go back there and say apostle. At that time, we had pastored a church for a while, but we weren't pastoring. We weren't involved in a full-time ministry. And uh, we didn't have any congregation or any great following. And I thought, apostle? I can't call myself an apostle. So for about a year and a half or two, we didn't even mention it to anybody. And this was, you said, this was 2005, right? Yeah. Yes. Wow, yeah. that's yeah. interesting. But we were, prayer, we were already prayer uh, leaders in Maryland, in the state of Maryland. Uh, just, just go back to that. We were born again. Uh, remember when I was telling you she read the letter? Mm -hmm. Well, within two weeks, I was born again, filled with the Holy Spirit from that leading every night with the Lord. And I've been on fire ever since. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kept, that was called a time that was called the charismatic movement because mm -hmm. the Spirit was moving it so much in people that it caused a whole movement to sweep around the world. Mm -hmm. And it was really about the restoration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit yeah. because 
people weren't using them in the church. Mm -hmm. But now they started, I mean, a few were, but now yeah. it was prevalent, and it started breaking out in Baptist churches and uh, Presbyterian churches. All the denominations okay. started having some of this breakout of mm -hmm. the useful spirit. So, uh, and then we were both ordained. But in nine, uh, well, before we were ordained in 1976 or so, both of us individually heard from the Lord to start a Christian school here in Baltimore, a 12th grade Christian school. And this was when you were married, right? Oh, yeah, we were okay, married. So yeah, I, this is like three, four years after we're married. Okay. And um, so that's a long story, but the short yeah. is we did that. And uh, we, we managed to get school buses from the Lord. Everything was on faith because we had no money. And, um, and we, had given, we had school buses. We had kids from all over Baltimore. All over. We had 33 pastors' children in our school. And uh, it was a great time. And um, then after a while... Things happened, and we started a second school. A second school, same way. Came to church. And this time, we yes, we were ordained, and we had a church and a, our own school building in uh, Hailthorpe, which is near Catonsville. And um, once again, the kids that mostly came to our school were from the city, rather than the county. A few from the county, but most from the city, East East Baltimore, West Baltimore. And um, so we did all that. So then we had a season where God had us go back out in the world and work day jobs, you know. And I went back into teaching school in the public school system. That's where my eyes were really opened because I saw how much the world had changed and it wasn't for the better. And I could not believe because before I met him, I had taught in the public school system uh, in the city. And the difference between how the children acted and how they were acting now when I went back in were day and night. And so I thought, boy, this is a great spiritual problem. We've got, some, we've got to find out what we're going to do to change this, to change the atmosphere, to change Baltimore, to change the church. There was just so much going on in my head. And so it was in the midst of all that that we heard it was time to start intercession amongst all the churches, and the Holy Spirit called us. And within, um, I'd say within two months, us doing nothing, 200 intercessors from various churches across the city had, were coming together praying, and God was just moving in our midst terrifically. And by the end of the first year, we had... 386 churches in the city sending their intercessors to this meeting and uh, we would pray for hours and we started even meeting on Friday nights once a month all night long we would pray for all the needs of the city and we made it a different church each time we did that mm -hmm. and we did it in a circle all we circled and circled the city and uh, that led to Chuck hearing about us Chuck Pierce in Texas ask us to uh, take over the state of Maryland, do that just in larger thing outside of Baltimore, take you know, take it to the to the state. And what we do in that prayer is a different kind of praying. It's called strategic prayer. You have a strategy. You have a goal, something that needs changing, 
bringing itself into divine order with what God has in mind for, for mankind and uh, praying according to the word of God to see these things happen because we already know it's God's will. We know it's out of God's will. It needs to come into God's will. We get a strategy, we agree on it, and then we start praying. We do what we call spiritual mapping, where we actually take a territory and find out about that territory, what's going on, find out where the churches are, find out where the porno shops are, uh, find out where the, the, there's crime in the area, uh, what, what monuments are there. Well, boy, researching monuments in Baltimore is a whole lot of fun because there's so many everywhere. You know, Baltimore's and, uh, called Monument City. Each oh, monument. No, I didn't know that. Oh, it does. Yeah. They have 80-something monuments built Officially, in the city. 80, 80 some monuments. But what, as we went to each monument, we would find out some spiritual principle behind that monument. Uh, sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad. <laughs> and uh, and so, we would be able to deal with that uh, situation, you know, you redeeming to, those, those possibilities. We we have what we call identificational repentance. We pray that God would forgive. We confess the sins as our own sin, like Daniel, like Daniel did yeah. in chapter uh -huh. 9. Mm -hmm. So we own the sin, which the Lord has shown me that more or less it's you can, it's not like fictional. <laughs> it is you because it's something like what are Christians doing? They may not be doing the sin. So that what aren't they doing that could change the situation, but they're not doing anything perhaps. And so you are lending yourself into that sinful situation. So anyway, so we, we do that and uh, we have what we call praying on site with insight. For instance, murder in this place is big news, you know, mm -hmm. in this city. So when we blood has been spilled, we get the address and we get a group together and we go. This is after, you know, day, a day, two weeks, a week, whatever. <clears throat> and we go there and we pray on that site because, and we ask God to show us what gave the enemy the right to spill blood on that land. What are they doing around there that shows a stronghold of violence that attracts these spirits, which attracts the people with these spirits inside of them to come there and do things of this nature? So we, we do a lot of praying and research on that and praying, and, um, and we expect, and because we write down the dates of when we do this, what happened there, why we're doing what we're doing, we look for results. And we generally see or hear within a few months uh, about a change that's happening in that area. Okay, so I want you to I want you to go into <clears throat> a little more detail about spiritual mapping because this is probably going to be the first time a lot of people even heard this term. So, yes, it's not like strange or voodoo or oh no 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 no, no it's no. totally well we, what we did uh, was. Um, if we were doing an area, let's say we were doing a, a mile area, square mile, mm -hmm. we would go and get maps down at the Maryland State Highway Roads, Roads Commission, commission. Yeah. State Roads Commission. They have wonderful <laughs> maps, and they don't charge a whole lot for them. Um, and the, the maps are in segments so that they're a portion of the city, not, not a whole city uh -huh. map, but a small portion.
uh, and uh, we get we get the, that foam yeah. board backing. Yeah. And uh, so we put the basic map down, and then the best way to do it is if you use uh, plastic overlays mm -hmm. and so you, you mark use on markers. The, and then use markers okay. on the plastic overlays, lay it over the map. And like where are the churches located? Locate all the churches. Well, here's how we do the, the churches. We get push bins. That's why we use the foam board. Yeah. Okay. And we and they're different colors. So I'll say all the churches are white push bins. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all the um, porno shops, they're you yeah, know are black bins or whatever. You know, you, yeah, you, yeah. you got like five. Where different are the, where where's dope being dealt? <laughs> Where's uh, murders happening or shootings happening? Now, do you use some of the, because um, I know that online in Maryland, they have the crime maps or something like that you exactly. can find. So you use that. Yeah. Yes, okay. and now, at the back. time when they didn't have that, back in the day, yeah, this has been, uh, this was 2000, and actually we got started in 19, uh, yeah, 1996 yeah. doing this. Uh, we would send the intercessors to the local police department where they lived near oh, okay. nearest the area, yeah. and go in and talk to the sergeant or whoever their major, and say, "Tell us where the crime areas, where do the orange, vi orange is violence." Yeah. yeah, and they show you where it is, and they explain everything to it, and they say, "Well, we're going to be targeting that ourselves, and we'll be back, and we expect crime to be." down and we have done that and in one case they were down 50 percent in three months or six months i can't remember which yeah but it was a huge mm -hmm. amount and the wow. the majors said to the intercessors that went in there which i was not one um they said i'm so glad you came in because we didn't know how to contact you because I knew that y'all were really praying and doing what you said you were going to do, <laughs> because it's down, and we have nothing else. We're not doing anything any differently. Mm -hmm. So I know that it is the prayer that makes the difference. Wow. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that kind of has not been as active as it was in the past, mm -hmm. and uh, getting participation uh, to do it has been very difficult. And so consequently, uh, in Baltimore City, there's a very much a lack of, of uh, that kind of activity. Uh, we feel like if we could just get churches to understand that if they come together and work as a unit, that we'd be able to do this, we'd be able to cover these things. All intercessors are not strategic intercessors. And they don't even understand strategic warfare praying. Uh, but we would really love to come to various churches and teach their intercessors about strategic warfare and all the scriptures. I and mean, we have we've published and written books on this subject. I want you to come back on the podcast and talk about that. But we'll save that for later. But yeah, that's going to be good. Okay, so go ahead. <laughs> so yeah. so basically at this point um people they're getting a pretty good sense of who you are what you've been doing and all that kind of stuff um one question i did have for you just real quick and it's just going to be a real quick answer to it when you started this um when you said chuck pierce he heard about you 
That was before or after the conference that you went to? Oh, before, three years before the conference that we okay. went to, which was his conference. And then he happened to come up to you yeah. afterwards. Yeah, okay. he knew us because okay. he'd already called us and asked us to okay. head up. See, every state well, in the United States yeah. has someone that he's put in charge of strategic warfare, praying for that state. And then we have meetings throughout the year, maybe two or three meetings, where we come together and we talk about what's going on, what's working, what isn't working. We get ideas from people from other states of what they've done. And then we actually, many times, come together on you know a conference call and we pray from all over the United States about a problem someone's having major going on in their state mm -hmm. to overthrow the works of the devil through mm -hmm. that. It's very powerful when you yeah. get representation from every state. Yeah. We, it's like a Congress before the Lord's throne. Well, yeah, as a result like of, of what Chuck said, they have to understand he's a prophet and he sees things into the future. Yeah. And so when he said, start calling yourself apostles, he wasn't saying right now you're, you're doing the apostle work. But that your your uh, future is as apostles. Well, we didn't quite get that. Okay, we had only started uh, reading books on the yeah, restoration of we, modern we day apostles. Okay, we yeah. didn't we didn't really understand it. But when we came back to Maryland over the period of the next year year and a half, pastors and leaders started coming to us and asking us for help. In some cases, there were burnouts or difficulties. In other cases, they just wanted more. They wanted to hear more about what we understood and knew. And so we began seeing uh, a group of, of pastors and leaders coming to us and saying, mentor us, teach us, uh, show us how to do this. And uh, in, the, quite, in the things that we know how to do, they already yeah, knew yeah. how to be pastors, yeah. Yeah. you know, and uh, we're Christians. And uh, we we went to uh, uh, one uh, meeting where we, we had a house of prayer set up down in Patterson Park, and uh, a gentleman, uh, a pastor, said he wanted to see it, wanted to meet us down there. So we went there, and... He walks in the door, and we don't know him. We've never met him before. I happen to be a African American pastor, and he walked in the door. And before we said anything, he said, "Don't say anything. I want you to know that I've been following what you've been saying on your emails, and it's changed my life and changed my church. And you are my apostles." Wow. He had a church of you about know. 250 people. And then that, <laughs> we were like, what? What? You know. and, we, and, and how he had found us was that we had sent out an email that the House of Prayer, which is just a row house across the yeah. street from the park, Patterson Park, was in bad need of a new tar level. It was a flat roof. And we needed $500. And he's the one that sent us the check. And we didn't know who in the world was sending us this check you know, maybe a month, couple of months before. And then he wrote and asked, uh, could he meet us? That's why I came to the house for him to meet us. And uh, so that started a start of a relationship wow. there. And so, and so by then five or six or seven or eight pastors started coming, and gradually we saw God developing something. Um, 
And also, we started meeting people, good, solid Christian people, but people who, who weren't uh, doing the work of ministry that God really called them to do. And we, could, we somehow were able to look into their lives and see their potential uh, and encourage them and mentor them into uh, a release of actually getting into doing the job that God's called them to do. And we've seen a number of people raised up. Uh, now they're way beyond us in terms of influence and ministry and and breadth of their ministry, uh, and this has occurred numerous times over and over again. So our apostolic role has been really one of of raising people up to do kingdom work. Mm -hmm. uh, and explaining and, kingdom, because you know the huge shift has been God shifting us from a church mentality. Yes. Uh, just It's us, we're just interested in what we're doing, and maybe once a year we'll do something with some other churches in the area. And that, mm -hmm. but no, God wants us to get that idea, get the that the boundaries are, are are unlimited as far as working in the kingdom, and that it is His kingdom, and it doesn't matter what label you're flying up over your door as far as the denomination. If your denomination tells you that you cannot meet with other denominations, and trust me, there sure are plenty are. of yes. those, then you need to have your antenna go up, mm -hmm. and if you cannot make some changes in that church, it's time to be, oh, come follow me. Yes. Jesus is leading the kingdom, and uh, mm -hmm. and we are all brothers and sisters in that kingdom, and it's his work, his his sheep, his everything, and we have to stop thinking these are ours, me, mine, and us four, no more, and all that stuff. Exactly. So I want to back up a little bit. All right. So, We're gonna end up back in the, <laughs> in the garage. Here. <laughs> well, this is the reason why, because normally when I get people on the podcast. I like to talk about their background because okay, number good. one, the number one reason is because I want people to understand where you come from, sure. how you got to who become who you are good. and things of that nature. So I'm going to start with you and that, and we're going to go all the way back to childhood. Okay. okay. So just tell us about like okay. where you're from, sure. what childhood was like for you, your, your upbringing, Sure. Spiritual stuff with it I and all that up to you graduated high school, let's say. I can take you right through college on top of that. Well, all right. I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, but shortly after that, we moved to Texas. And uh, I lost my mother to cancer at the age of three. So I was raised by grandmothers and a father who had to work two jobs to keep us in food and a roof over the house. Uh, I was a Roman Catholic. My uncle, my mother's brother, was the Bishop of Arkansas. Wow. And so we were Catholic Catholic. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we went to a Catholic school, not I'm just a Catholic that. church. And we said the rosary all the time. And I was very devoted to Mary, very mm -hmm. 100%. And they had, uh, if you made your first communion in the first grade, they chose someone to crown Mary the Queen on the Mother's Day, they had a big procession, 
singing, singing hymns to Mary and placing a crown on her head. Wow. I was chosen. So, you know, I was lined up for the devil right there. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was just saying the rosary all the time because I felt like Mary really had selected me. And um, so I was a very serious Catholic girl. I went through, you know, 12th, 12th grade through Catholics. Then I went to a Catholic college for four more in Memphis, Tennessee. So 16 years of Catholic, 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 saying the rosary. And in college, sometimes I said the rosary three times a day because I was having a lot of problems and I just was, that's all I knew how to pray. Uh -huh. So I did what I knew and God was waiting in the wings for me. Hallelujah. So um, that's my background. And, um, and I was still a Catholic going to Mass uh, when I met the Lord three weeks after, well, I think it was only um, only a two weeks or a week after the lady had come and given her witness to her about her sister being healed. Wow. Oh, yeah. She, How old were you then? 29. And wow. She, and okay. she told me, um, listen, we have one of those little prayer meetings in our church. I go to a physical church and we've got one who meets in my home. You want to come? Oh, yeah. When is it? Friday. We both go. Now, mind you, we've only been married three weeks. And um, and I just I just sensed the presence of God in that place. And I just said, whatever you are, you're God. I want that. So they prayed for me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I was born again, filled with the Holy Spirit that night. I'm telling you, it was day and night. What a difference. Yeah. I, I felt like a fresh transparent pane of glass mm. and and ignited oh i was on fire oh my god for the and Lord. i was married to this crazy catholic woman <laughs> he thought i had lost walking in tongues and he thought and of believing <laughs> all i was crazier than a moon yeah. but he was right there with me exactly well <laughs> let's go back to your childhood and come up to that point well, you know, I'm really old, so we're going way back here. But um, have I was... We, have we said I, how old you are? We haven't said how old either one of you is. Yeah, actually, uh, I'll be 81 next month. Okay. So... Uh, 77. Yeah. Almost. Wow. Anyhow, um, I, I was born at the end of the Depression. Uh, a big family. My, uh, my parents had six kids, including myself and my little sister. And... Uh, we lived with my grandfather and grandmother in the big house uh, in Catonsville, which was uh, kind of the, almost the country in those days. There was a big separation between the city and county, yeah. not that there isn't so much anymore. But um, I, so I grew up in a very strong family atmosphere. My father owned a drugstore in the town, uh, was a sort of a local a uh, figure that people, everybody knew him. He was a big man, and uh, they actually nicknamed him Humphrey for a uh, cartoon character, Humphrey Pennyworth in the okay. old Joe Palooka cartoon. Anyhow, um, he had been a boxer. Oh, okay. Wow. He, was, he was a big guy, had great big hands. I have big hands, but Dan's hands were bigger than mine. And, uh, and so he was kind of like... Uh, uh, a, a bigger than life person, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had two older brothers and two older sisters and a younger sister. And uh, so uh, 
I grew up in the Methodist Church. We were very churched. And from the time I was, I can remember, I was in church all the time. Uh, and I, as a teenager, I would walk to church because we were only a block and a half away from the church. And so I was there, you know, several nights a week and, and uh, sang in the choir on Sunday morning, took myself to church. So I was, I was in the church culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a teenager, I had... My mother always prayed for a pastor, a preacher in the family. Oh, yeah. Her brother was a preacher, <laughs> uh, very influential in my life, uh, somebody I respected deeply and loved a lot. And uh, he was the, uh, he, he had several churches in Northern Virginia, Methodist churches, and became the Methodist evangelist for the Northern District. Um, and so somebody that uh, it was somebody to look up to. Yeah. And, of course, my father was very churched. Uh, he went to church. His mother and grandmother, my grandmother and grandfather, uh, were choir. He, grandfather led the choir. Grandmother played the organ. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, they were very much into that. And Daddy had a great voice. He sang in the choir at one time, but not in my, you know, not later on. Anyhow, we had a drugstore, and then um, after World War II was over, uh, one of Dad's friends came home and needed uh, uh, something to, uh, needed an occupation. He and my father got together and opened a sporting goods store. So we had a drugstore and a sporting goods store. Neither one made huge amounts of money, but they, we were a well-to-do family by and large. Uh, uh, yeah, I was uh, high school. Uh, I was in drama. I sang in the choir, um, played on the lacrosse team. wasn't a great athlete, but was good enough to make the team, but really didn't get to play in very much. Uh, mm-hmm. But I still was part of that. Uh, so I did a lot of things in high school, except I wasn't a very good student. I would I would work hard when I needed to, and then I would slough off. And my report card looked up and down, A-E, A-E, kind of thing, you know. Um, so when I graduated, my report card was actually stamped, not approved for college. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Maybe, I haven't even heard of that before. Not, no, I think not, they made that up just for him. I still have it somewhere. It was you know, well, well, stamped, you know, not recommended for college. <laughs> So, That's because he was full of, he just playing around. Yeah. Uh-huh. So after high school, uh, I worked in my father's drugstore for a while, but my father at that point had had a very severe heart attack and he was unable to work and the drugstore just went downhill. My brother worked in it for a while and kept it up, but then he and my father kind of fell out over some issues and my brother just parted ways. Um, and became a very successful accountant, by the way. And that was some influence on my life. So anyhow, um, I ended up, uh, after a few months not being here, the drugstore was, was obvious, the drugstore was not going to last. And uh, I went to work for the B&O Railroad uh, because my girlfriend at the time, her father, her, her uncle, was a chief clerk at the, at the B&O Railroad. Um, and he got me a job. So I went to work as a mail clerk at the B&O Railroad. 
and uh, worked at that for a month or two, could see it was going nowhere, uh, didn't really like the, that particular type of work, uh, talked to her uncle, and he suggested that I go to secretarial school, because in those days, a secretary to a top uh, person in the railroad ended up becoming that person's replacement when they retired, wow. so it was a good it was a good pathway. Okay. <laughs> so I went to secretarial school. Well, in order to go to that during the day, I had to take a night shift job. So I bid on this night shift job, and uh, it was a union deal, and, and I got the job, and uh, I would work on punch card equipment, which is the predecessor mm -hmm. to computers. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a, a big it was, it was a huge job, uh, and you didn't really learn very much. You just learned how to push the buttons on the machines at the right time and what have you. So I did that for uh, about three months, and uh, I thought I, I, you know, kind of bravado, I thought I pretty well knew what I was doing because I was good at what they gave me to do. Um, but I didn't like the secretarial school. I wasn't very good at it, so I quit. Um, and uh, then the, the furlough came, where they furloughed people. Where you actually lost your job. You still had a job, but you didn't get paid. You didn't work <laughs> until they called you back from the furlough. And I thought, well, this is crazy. I'm not going to put up with this. Uh, I, can't, I can't not make any money. Yeah. Um, so I applied for a job uh, out at a company called National Plastics in Odenton. And it was at IBM that was doing the same kind of punch card job, and I thought I knew all about it. So they liked me, and I uh, thought I was, you know, you know, perfect for the job. So I went to work out there, and the first day I almost lost my job because I didn't know what to do. I was doing everything wrong. And uh, they, they, they came up and talked to me, and they were very nice about it. And they said, you know, this, this isn't going to work. <laughs> so we, can, we need somebody that can really do this job, and uh, and so I don't even know how it happened, but somehow or another they said we'll give you two weeks to learn what you're supposed to do. If you can if you can pick it up in two weeks, we'll keep you. Otherwise, we're going to have to let you go. Wow. So I had I was on two weeks probation, and in two weeks I. I was able to do all the things they needed me to do. They just taught me, and I was I picked it up. So uh, I went on night shift for nine months uh, at that uh, facility, and during that time, I was able to go to uh, schools on the equipment. I actually went downtown, attended classes during the day, and then went to work at night, and. Uh, Within a year, I was very proficient uh, in everything that, that was needed to be done. Learned how to wire boards, which was essentially equivalent to programming today. Um, and then worked there another two years, uh, became their lead operator and uh, uh, worked very well. And then got a job as a uh, uh, supervisor over a, uh, another unit, and that job was, uh, uh, I worked at for another three years, uh, and that was a very good job. So I was moving up constantly as things went on. While this happened, 
uh, my brother convinced me that I should go to accounting school because he had just graduated and was making good money and he said this is the future and I talked to my boss at the company and they liked the idea and so the company actually paid for all my schooling uh-huh. and I went to what now has become part of the University of Baltimore at that time it was at the YMCA so I learned accounting and uh, it took me three and a half years to get through that accounting course but then I actually passed the Maryland CPA exam. Mm. So I'm uh, licensed as a CPA. So in other words, and, although you weren't approved for college, you were approved <laughs> to be a CPA. Right, right. <laughs> right. And I graduated with honors, by the way. Wow. Um, so then I uh, decided that I really wanted uh, to a get degree. a degree. And I, uh, at, the, at the same time, I was... I, I had moved to another job, another several different jobs, uh, and uh, <laughs> fascinating experiences. But anyhow, um, went to Loyal College at mm-hmm. night and uh, attended there for another seven years to get my bachelor's degree. Uh, and somewhere uh, along the line i re-encountered my old boss the one that had hired me for the job that i couldn't do (laughs) and uh, he needed somebody and we talked and he decided he would hire me and he worked for the maryland state department of education and uh, so this was a leapfrog into a different uh, atmosphere out of business into government uh, and i was hired as a systems analyst uh, for uh, the Department of Education. Uh, And at that point, uh, decided, I had just met Annette, I had just graduated uh, from night school, and decided to go for a master's degree, and I went to Johns Hopkins, and again, night school again, and again, the employer paid for the whole thing. Wow. And if you made certain grades, yeah, they paid yeah. those paid entire amounts. So, mm-hmm. so all my schooling was paid for, and I got a master's in education. And then you taught, um, uh, you taught a course at Johns Hopkins. I ended up teaching in, in, wow. their, in their master's oh, degree. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> for someone and, who wasn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so then um, I... Uh, Bid on. I, I actually was promoted within the Department of Education to a most fascinating job where I was a financial analyst in charge of distribution of state aid to public schools. Uh, and that was millions of dollars responsibility, uh, complex formulas, complex evaluations. I was also responsible for helping put together the departmental budget. Uh, and along the way, I picked up the responsibility for pricing legislation that involved education. Uh, this was a fascinating uh, area because I could take a piece of legislation and research it, get all the right statistics, and then cost it out. And my cost estimates were better than the cost estimates that the legislative department was doing <laughs> and so I got to go down wow. and meet uh, the legislators and testify before legislators 
And I you ended met up, with the governor. Yeah, and for the governor and lieutenant governor, I worked very closely with the lieutenant governor, Blair Lee, in those days, developing what is now the educational formula that still exists today. Wow. Uh, along the way, a, a fellow <laughs> from the University of Maryland came along, and, and he was had just gotten his doctorate degree, and he wanted to write a manual dealing with finance and, and accountability. In those days, educational accountability was the buzzword. It was just coming into its its own in those days. So we ended up writing a, a fairly substantial book uh, for what was known as the Cooperative Accountability Project throughout the nation. And we were then called to come and lecture. So I got to travel uh, to different states and lecture in different states about educational accountability um, and was actually uh, able to work with a number of university professors uh, around the country and uh, it, was, it was a fascinating so I was in the Maryland legislature I actually uh, went to Congress and, and testified before Congress on legislation so I got to go to Washington, D.C., uh, and travel the country lecturing. <laughs> so it's pretty fascinating. Wow. Well, uh, a change happened where I was theoretically the only qualified candidate for a assistant superintendent, state superintendent position hmm. in finance. Wow. And I was the only qualified candidate, but I didn't get the job. Uh, politics kind of came in, someone else got the job, and I was really kind of upset with the whole thing because I didn't like the guy that got the job, and he was now my boss. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, uh, I, I, you know, I had this wonderful job that I really loved, and all of a sudden this change came, and I, I really didn't know what to do. And at that time, someone came up to us and said to us, we think you're supposed to start a Christian school. Well, we said, no, we're not, <laughs> not going to do that. And then uh, that was about a month, about a month and a half or two months went by. And other people, several people said this to us. And we thought, no, no, we're not doing that. And she would say, no, absolutely not. And uh, so one morning I walked into the office and picked up the newspaper, and on the back of the newspaper was the announcement of the closing of this private school hmm. near where we live. Hmm. And something just went off inside me and just said, this is it. This is what you're supposed to do. Well, I had been born again about four years earlier, and it totally changed my life, changed my thought patterns, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I was really trying to obey God and listen to God. And we had, we had been very involved in Christian work and ran a large prayer meeting at the church and what have you. Um, but had no idea that we would, we would be moving towards some kind of full-time Christian work. So, so let me ask you I something. I pick up the phone, I called her. Okay, so you... I want you to tell what happened when you called her, but I need to ask you a question after that. Okay. Yeah. So he, he said, what, what did you say to me? I said, guess what? Oh, yeah, I said, 
I know, and you said you do. I said, yeah, we're going to start a Christian school. Because I, every time he brought it up to me, because he wanted to discuss it, I would say, no, I'm not having any part of that. Because <laughs> uh, I had, like I had told you before, I had taught seven years in the inner city. And the last year, one day, this uh, student uh, had taken a piece of cement that was shaped like a dagger and uh, picked it up and came down the hall, duck walking. I taught little smaller children, third graders. And when he got up in front of my face, he went right for my face with that dagger. And I uh, threw my hand, and it had cut all the way down to the bone, all the way down my fingers wow. and hand. But I saved my face. It scared me to death, and I, I just was really turned off. No. I want out of here. I want to be a house. I want to stay home. <laughs> Get me out of here. And um, so his, all his talking about starting a school, it, it didn't appeal. But I had, my prayer partner had called me that morning before he called. And she said, she was one of those that thought we should start a school. And she said, did you ask the Lord? And I said, no, but I'll do it right now. So I hung up <laughs> and I said, Okay, Philippians 4, you know, uh, you'll give me the will to do your good will. So if this is your will, then uh, let me know immediately. I mean, that someone got those words out of my mouth. Immediately, I was filled with joy and excitement to do that. And then the phone rang, and it was him. He said, guess what? And I said, I know what. We're going to start a Christian school. And he said, yes, we are. Mm -hmm. So then we just, could, we just couldn't stop talking about what it was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And that we even thought that that build, that specific building, was going to be it. But thanks be to God, it wasn't. It was a huge <laughs> building, a huge endeavor. We had no people, no backing, no nothing. Uh -huh. We had a lot of faith. Uh, so. Okay. So let me... Um I want to touch on something real quick because now <clears throat> we're around the time we're a couple years after you got married, but you're also a couple years after you got saved too. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, what kind of church were you attending at the time? Was it Episcopalian Methodist or what? It was Episcopalian. Well, yes, it was, well, but we uh, weren't like anybody else's Episcopal church. I know. <laughs> I was about to say, cause yeah. when you said all those things, I know I've heard of that, but anyway, go ahead. Well, I was still in the Methodist Church when, when we met the Lord. Uh, we were going to this prayer meeting in an Episcopal priest's home, uh, uh, and, and that gradually moved into the church. Uh, she was still attending the Roman Catholic Church, actually teaching CCD class. Well, that was another thing. Yeah. That means confraternity of Christian doctrine. And I had always said, I'm not teaching confraternity of Christian doctrine to a bunch of kids. I'm not doing that. Uh, so they call me up. Oh, this is what happened. Immediately started tithing. No one ever told me about tithing. They don't teach tithing in the Catholic Church. And so, uh, but I, I just knew. I read the word, so I knew. And I started tithing to this Catholic Church. And I wrote a check out for 10% of whatever... My well, both weeks, of us made, actually. It was a pretty good amount of money. Two weeks' salary in, into that church. And the priest calls me up. They had 5,000 people in that church. He said, what happened? He said, I'm, I'm really embarrassed because uh, 
I think you made a mistake. And I said, what? And he said, about the check. I said, did I forget to sign it? And he said, no, it's about the amount. And I said, whatever it was. And he said, you mean you meant to, say, to write that? I said, yes. It'll be that every two weeks. And, and he said, what happened? What a good question to ask me. <laughs> so I told him. So he said, we need you over here teaching CCD to these junior high students. And so I was, can you explain CCD? Because I don't, I don't come from a Catholic background. I don't know nothing about that. Well, Christian doctrine means you're going to teach what it meant to be a Catholic, okay. which would be a, a lot to do with being a Christian, but a lot that has to do with laws of the Catholic Church. And, okay. uh, and I, I didn't want to do that. But it's, and I was about to say, no, thank you. And the Lord, it came out of my mouth. Oh, sure. I, I thought, who said that? It surely wasn't me. So I prayed after I got off the phone. And it was going to be about three months before it started up. When they brought me the book, the teacher's manual to teach, they, had bought, they said, we have new books we're going to use this year. It was called. How to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That was wow. the name. I said, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> and so I would go in and then I would tell them. I had miracles every day happening in my life. So I would just teach it's the all lesson real. All and say, in Israel, guess what happened to me this week? Guess what happened since I saw you last week? This and this and this and this. I had those kids sitting on the edge of their chair and they were going home to tell their parents. Mm -hmm. Well, then the, pat, the couple of them were calling up the what is this? What is? What do they teach it? This doesn't sound like Catholic. <laughs> and so they get, they sent someone over to the house to ask me if I could stop telling my testimony stories along with the curriculum. Wow. And Robert said, "Well, no, she cannot. If she, if she's not if she doesn't have full reign to follow the Holy Spirit in her lessons, she can't do the lessons." So they went, mm, okay, well you just keep on doing what you're doing because <laughs> those kids like you. So at the end of that year, um, they asked me would I take that same class. They were seventh graders. Take them on into the eighth grade for the CCD. Because, and this was at nighttime. You did this at night. Because they were going to prepare them to be confirmed, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which in the Catholic Church, it's supposed to mean what it really means, but very few people uh, expect to receive, and it's not like you're see they're seeking it. They took the course.